Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Break, the podcast bringing you content to sports fans at a time when we are deprived of live action. In today's episode, I'll be speaking to arguably the game's greatest ever player about his main rivals throughout his career. So without any further ado, let's say hello to The Rocket, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie, hello, how are you? Good to see you. Yeah, I'm good, Andrew, right? I'm good, very well. You look very relaxed there in lockdown mode at the moment. Yeah, we're just sort of tidying the house up, really, since Layla come back. Uh, she started from the top and just cleaning the whole house up, so it's just been mental, really. I've just been laying on the sofa for about three weeks. <laughs> you look like you haven't moved for about three weeks. I ain't, mate. <laughs> are you missing snooker? Are you missing playing at all? No, nah, not one bit, mate. No? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> okay. How rusty will you be when you eventually... What's the longest you've gone without ever playing a shot? Nine months. What, you didn't hit one ball in nine months? No, didn't hit one ball. And how did that affect you? Uh, six weeks, seven weeks practice when I won the Worlds, mate. <laughs> yeah, but were you, you were playing exhibitions throughout those nine months, weren't nah, you? No, didn't do a thing. Oh, wow, didn't okay. Up. Do you think? Do you think other players might suffer from having this longer break out of the game? Nah, they'll be all right. They're playing so much, I think they could do with a break, to be honest with you. Listen, in this episode, we're talking about your rivals. And I want to start off by talking about players that went on to become your rivals, but players that as a kid growing up, I'm, I'm guessing you were watching and maybe taking notes from. So what's your earliest recollection of watching snooker and looking at the likes of Steve Davis and Jimmy White and thinking, ah, that's who I want to be like? Yeah, I suppose growing up, um, I used to look at them and think, you know, they, they were like the best players around. You know, you watch Steve Davis, he was just like a robot. Never thought he was going to make a mistake. Um, Jimmy White, most exciting player you'd ever see. And you just thought, oh, you know, just play every shot in the book. And then, you know, so they were like the two yardsticks, if you like, from, from me growing up. Um, but if I was to watch them playing now uh, in some of their matches, which I do sometimes, I look at it and I just think the standard really wasn't that high. You know, so it's just all about perception and people raising that the game to a higher level. But, but at the mm. time... That was the highest level, but then this young Scottish guy, Stephen Hendry, came along, and he's probably taken the game to as high as, you know, it's a, you, you, it'd be hard to say that anyone has maybe took the game on any further than Hendry. You know, Hendry, I still think if he was in his prime, if he was all in our prime, he would still be winning many, many titles. So, um, yeah, you kind of you look at Davis and Jimmy, yeah, fantastic players, but. Um, probably not as good enough to stay with the with the, the current breed of players, if you know what I mean. 
Am I right in saying that as a kid, when you were sort of, you know, learning the game, you used to record Steve Davis and watch him back on the video? Yeah, on Betamax and VH, VHS. We didn't have yeah. no Sky Planner there, so um, it was all done by manual. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I used to get a lot of my snook off of CFAX if I couldn't watch it on the TV. Uh, I'd be watching the scores and that, you know. Uh, and in brackets, uh, if there was any breaks over 40, you could see that the frame was run with <laughs> 40 or whatever it was. Um, yeah. And then obviously your highlights and what you could watch on TV. Yeah, but I'd always watch Davis because he was the guy that I wanted to learn from, you know. So um, I tried to watch as many matches of, of, of the nugget as I could. What what was it about? Because I don't, I see your game in Jimmy's, you know. I see, uh, you know, obviously your game in Higgins. I don't know if I necessarily see anything from from the stance to just, you know, the composure that Davis had. So what is it about Davis's game you think you've taken into yours then? What what is it you saw as a kid you thought, I want to be like that? Well, as a, as a, up until I was about 14, I followed Davis, you know. So if you look at a video of me when I played the Cockney Classic when I was 14, you'll see I was much more like a Davis or a Hendry technique was just just perfect and then obviously I started practicing with players like Ken Doherty and and other players that were good amateurs and they were the first type of players that I've seen in the flesh if you like so I started copying them and so I kind of lost I kind of went backwards in a way because I was I created a lot of faults in my game which is in in hindsight was the worst thing I'd ever done but at the time it's you know, um, you tried different things, but mm. once you change something, it's very hard to go back to what you was before. So, in any, in, in some respects, that's probably the biggest regret I've ever got in snooker that I never stuck with the technique that I had when I was fourteen. And can you remember the first time you you saw Jimmy? Um, can you remember you know who was playing, or did you go and see him live? Was it on the telly? I see him playing an exhibition in Walthamstow, and he was uh, it was him and Tony Mio doing an exhibition. And uh, yeah, I just remember seeing Jimmy there, and yeah. It's, He's like a god, you know, a snooker god, you know. Yeah, and do you think you, from that moment, you then maybe fine tune your game to play the more flare shots, the more exhibition shots? Then, yeah, there was a there was a period when I was growing up where I, I wanted to play like Jimmy, so I'd spin the cue around and I'd do all that sort of stuff. Um, but then I, you know, my dad sat me down and he was quite forward thinking in that way, and he went, "Look, you know, I know you want to be like Jimmy White, and that's great, you know, he's a fantastic player." He said, "But you know, if if you really want to start being the greatest player of all time and winning world championships, you know, who's the guy who's winning the tournaments? And I was like, all oh, right, Steve Davis, he went with there. You know, he's your role model. He's the guy you should be copying, you know? So, um, mm. so, you know, um, yeah, a lot of that of where I am today is probably down to my dad because, um, he kept, he kept me on the right, right tracks really. And what about when Stephen Hendry first came on the scene? What did you make of him? I, I see Stephen Hendry play when he was 15 in, in, uh, Hastings. And he was, I, just, I remember hearing about this, this kid who played, um, who was meant to be unbelievable. And he he was playing in a club. He was in a club playing a guy called Paul Tanner. And Paul Tanner was a very good player. He won a lot of pro-ams. And I thought, you know, I thought that Paul Tanner was as good as an amateur that was on the circuit. But Stephen Hendry just made him look so silly. You know, this kid was just bouncing around the table. He had this arrogance, his confidence. He just, and, I, and I remember watching him and just thinking that, I've never seen anyone play snooker like this in my life. And um, and I went home and I just said, I've, I've seen the best player I've ever seen. So all my uncles and my dad, and they was like, nah, he ain't going to be as good as Steve Davis. I said, you watch, this geezer is unbelievable. And, um, and it, I mean, you know, three years on, you know, he won the Rothmans and, and then he just took, off, took over, didn't he? Yeah, it's interesting. I was speaking to Stephen actually about how he coped as playing as an amateur. And he said that when he was playing 
in Scotland. He felt comfortable. But when he came down south as an amateur, he was out of his comfort zone and really did struggle, which really does surprise me, actually. Um, how, how, as a kid, when you were playing, did you just play without a care in the world, wherever you were? It's irrelevant, be it on the match table, playing in a pro-am or playing in the club. Were you always the same? Yeah, well, I was, I was playing a lot of the, lot of the pro-am circuit was always a lot stronger from, you know, from like Leeds down to London. You know, Scotland, you know, John Higgins would never venture down to play. So they had a smaller pool of players up there and probably not as many events and the depth wasn't strong. So, you know, um, it's a bit like playing in like first division football and then putting you in the Premier League. You know, the great players will adapt to it and go, OK, it's a bit faster, but I'll just adapt. You know, and it would probably been the same for Hendry. He had all the talent in the world, but maybe, you know, the standard was a little bit higher and he wasn't used to it, but that's that's probably what he needed. And, you know, when you're a great player, you know, that's what you need to push you on to higher levels. So, so what's it like, Ronnie? So we're all sports fans, be it football, snooker, whatever, and we all watch the telly as a kid and we see our idols, but very few of us actually go on to compete with our idols at the highest level. Of course, you've done that. So let's go back to Stephen Hendry. What was it like when you played him? You picked a few matches out. So one of them you picked out is the 93 UK final. You beat Davis along the way. I think it was 96 in the quarterfinal. That's one of them. So what's it like as a young kid coming through? You're playing Davis and then you're playing Hendry in the final. How do you mentally get around that? What was it like for you? Yeah, it was all, it was all like everything was just... Um, like my first year as a pro, I played a lot of qualifying matches and then I had to come in at the last 32 stage at the venue and I wasn't... I, I couldn't deal with that style of play. A lot of them were playing a lot of safety and... And shutting up shop and I was so so used to just you know a guy making a mistake against me and clearing up but these guys weren't leaving me easy opportunities so first year I really struggled with that you know just trying to find my feet but then the second year you know I kind of got I got a few results and um, you know obviously got to the semi-finals of Dubai and then the very next tournament I go to the UK Championship so you know um, it gave me a, a bit of belief and um, and then in, in, in between before the UK Championships I won the invitation tournament. So if you won this tournament, you got a wild card to the Masters. So I was on a bit of a good run, and I just think I just matured. I needed that first year just to mature a little bit. And then, um, and then obviously, like you know, I beat McManus. I think that was in the first or second round of the UK Championships, uh, which was a great scout. He was like number four or five in the world. And then I managed to beat Doherty, I think, at some point. And then I beat Davis. Uh, and to beat Davis was like he was like my hero. So. And that was like a massive result, really. And um, and then obviously, you know, Hendry in the final was just a complete different ball game, you know. Are you subconsciously raising your game because you're playing your heroes and you want them to see how good you are? Uh, no, I was just playing my game, really. You know, I just wanted to play well. I just wanted to, sh- I just wanted to compete with them. You know, I wasn't. I never went into the match thinking, you know, I'm going to win this. I never go into matches thinking, you know, I want to win this match. I go in there just thinking, I want to compete. You know, and if I can compete. Um, then you know it's that's the that's, that's the beauty of the game. You know, it's nice to win easy. You know, it's but to to be involved in a really good match, that's the best feeling. You now you want your opponents to to play well, you play well, and you're pushing each other, and you come off of it and you shake hands, whether you win or lose, and say, you know what, that was a we both give it. You know, we both give each other a good going through today. You know, and that's that's all you really want um, when you're playing a game. What are your early meetings with Jimmy White? Was in Blackpool. You beat him five one. What do you remember from that match? Um, yeah, I remember just sort of, uh, I was on a bit of a roll, you know, I was winning, I won so many matches, I think I was probably on about my 50-odd match by the time Jimmy came down, 
Uh, Jimmy obviously had like two or three months off, probably never even got his cue out of his case and uh, probably had like about two or three days practice before playing me. And, um, you know, I, I didn't expect to beat him because it's Jimmy White, you know. I expect him to come down and, you know, it was it was another level for me, you know. I used to play in the amateurs and the pros that are kind of, that were, they're pros, but they were more suited to the amateur level, really. So to play Jimmy, who was like a proven, you know, world, world-class player, I expected um, that maybe, you know, I'd, I'd probably lose that match. Mm. But I, I just think I played so many matches that they just, they didn't even feel like matches to me. It was just like a practice match, you know. So I just went out there and played. And I remember, I think I won 5-1, and I think it took me about 50, 50 minutes to get the victory as well. Okay, we're going to have a quick break. When we come back, more from Rocket, Ronnie O'Sullivan. We'll be talking about the class of 92 and Ronnie's legacy. We'll see you right after this. Ronnie, when we look at uh, two of your biggest rivals in snooker, I suppose it has to be for obvious reasons, and the main two being that you all turned pro in the same year, 1992, has to be Mark Williams and John Higgins. What do you remember playing both of those players as an amateur? Uh, well, I knew Mark Williams. Me and Mark used to play each other quite a lot on the pro-am circuit. So, you know, when we were 10, 11, 12, 13, we used to go to Hensby for the junior tournaments and that. So we knew, we knew of each other. But the first time I see John Higgins, he was 14. So, you know, no one had heard of him. And the first I heard was that this young Scottish kid had nearly had a 147 in the home internationals. So that, that was kind of like the buzz going. I didn't even know what John Higgins looked like. Um, but, but after we heard that, we was like, you know, you had to watch him play. And was watching him play and I thought, oh, this kid looks like super, super good, you know. And then um, and from that moment on, you knew John Higgins, you know, was going to be a class, class player. So that was my first encounter with John Higgins. But yeah, the rivalry from that day really um, has, has been on, you know, between the three of us. I, I won't ask if you thought back then the three of you were going to dominate snooker like you have done, because of course the answer will be no. But did you get the feeling that you and the other two, John and Mark, were a little bit maybe different? from everyone else the level of snooker you were producing was something that perhaps you hadn't seen from any other players did you get that feeling yeah yeah definitely you know there was a lot of good players around but you know we were we were hungry we had the desire do you know what i mean we were like you know we were, we loved it you know we wanted it you know and uh for a lot of snooker players it was just a bit of a lifestyle they used to go around there and have a bit of a laugh and joke but we we, we took our business serious you know so yeah, and I think it helped that the three of us come through together because I think we all kind of motiv- motivated each other to try and do better, you know, because if one was doing well, it always spurred the other one on to do well. So it was kind of like a healthy rivalry, really. What do you um, admire about both players? What are their um, best qualities, would you say? I think bottom line is, is that they've both got the killer instinct. They both can pop the big balls under pressure, which you have to do if you want to win the big titles. Um, I think John's obviously got more of an all-round complete game. He, he, he has a bit more of a power game about him. Mark, if there is one fault in his game, I'd say that he doesn't have that power game. You know, has to roll a lot of balls in and doesn't like to to get the balls open as much. And I think that, that if he could do that, he'd be an even much more harder player to beat. So there is a kind of weakness in Mark's game that there isn't in John's game. But then Mark has different ways of winning matches. You know, if you get if you, He's good at keeping it tight. He's good at, you know, making 40s and 50s and, and making it tough for you, you know. So, as, but, you know, um, yeah, they both come come with very strong assets to their game. 
You've had some great meetings, of course, between the three of you, actually. And I know you've picked out some meetings between you and John and you and Mark. One you picked out from your matches against John Higgins, uh, the 2003 Irish Masters, you won 10-9. Why that one out of all the matches you've had together? I just remember we both, like, when you get a match, like I said, you know, where you both play well against each other, there's no, there's no better feeling because, you know, you know, like, half a mistake and it's game over. And then, you know, it's just, you know, and then and then they make a mistake, then you pounce on them. And it's just, it's nice to know that if you get a chance, you know you're going to clear up. And if you make a mistake, you know he's going to clear up. So it just simplifies the game. It just makes it, you know, that's as good as it can get two players playing at their highest level. And I just think over a period of 19 frames, we've both played, you know, very, very well, you know. So, um, and that's great when you get two, two evenly matched players playing to their best. You know, they, they, there's no better game to watch. Three years before that in the Champions Cup, you beat Mark Williams 7-5. Why have you picked that match out, Ron? Yeah, because that was a kind of start. Like I was saying, you know, um, up until then, I was, you know, I was drinking and partying and just sort of snooker. I was playing, but I, I wasn't really doing myself justice. And then I went to the Priory in 2000 and uh, got myself clean. And ever since then, I, I kind of think my career started from that moment onwards. So the Champions of Champions Cup was like my first tournament where I actually went there properly prepared. You know, I was sober, I was clean, I was excited to be there. I wasn't sure how the snooker was going to go, but each match I got better and better and better. And then by the final, I found this form that I hadn't found for like five years. And I was like, wow. And, you know, my, my, my thoughts were clear. And it was just nice to be playing the game that I love feeling good about it and, and, and feeling that I was in, I, was, I actually got into top gear for the first time in five, five years. And, um, and I was just, all my emotions, everything, I was just so engaged in it. Whereas previously, you know, I was like, you know, I was just looking at my watch thinking, I just want to get out of it. You know, it's just, um, mm. but, it, but once I, once I'd come out priory, it was like, there was nowhere to go. This was my life snooker. And I, had to, I was much more professional about everything that I'd done. Ron, we're very lucky that on Eurosport we've got copious amounts of snooker. And whenever you and Mark or you and John or John and Mark meet, we make a big thing about it. We get very excited about it. Do you feel the same way that when you meet either of those, it's a bigger match? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, we're playing each other for like nine, 30 years now, you know. So, yeah, it's always nice to see like Nadal play Federer, Federer plays Djokovic. And their ages and their careers and their statistics are so evenly matched that you know, none of us have got anything to prove. So, you know, and the chances are that, you know, it's nice to see greats play each other, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I get why it's exciting. Um, so, yeah, it's good, yeah. Uh, another player you've got a, a healthy rivalry with is Mark Selby, who I think mm. turned pro seven years after you. You've had yeah. quite a lot of meetings in the UK, the Masters, obviously the World Championships. Can you remember the first time you saw him and what you thought of his ability on the table? Yeah, I always thought Mark was a great match player. You know, I watched him play and, you know, you could tell he was going to be a good player. But I see a lot of his faults. I I, I had the same faults as he, in my game as I think that he had in his game. And I knew how much of a struggle it was for me to try and play with him faults. You know, you know, one day he was great, the next day he was terrible. And that, like, up and down inconsistency um, can mentally get to you. So... Although I knew he was a fantastic player, I never expected him to be able to go on and be as, as successful as he was. You know, at one stage I said I didn't think he'd ever win the world title because 
to win the world title, you really can't afford to have a bad session. But what Mark's been able to do is he's, he's able to play bad, but he's also able to make the other player play bad. I was, ne- I was never able to do that. If I play bad, you know, balls are all there ready in the open and the, and the opponent would just hoover them up. Whereas when Mark was playing bad, you know, there'd be balls on cushions and you'd think like, you know, where do I go from here? So he, he was always able to, to play himself and stay in the matches. So he found a way to kind of still be able to win when you're playing bad. So, you know, uh, mm. and I never thought snooker could be played like that. I mean, I, you, you, you know, I'm, I know Mark doesn't like playing that, but if you sometimes have to do that to get a result and to get you into the next round, you've got to do what you've got to do. And, and no one in the history of the game has been better at that than Mark Selby. So, you know, you have to take your hat off to him, really. You've had some great matches. Uh, 2010 final, the Masters. Selby won that 10-9. Um, you met again four years later. You won that. It was one of your best performances. Actually. I think it was 10-4. Um, and in, in 2014, you met in the final of the World Championships as well. Is there one particular match you've played against him and you thought, do you know what, now we've got a rivalry between us? Um, I think I, I think maybe after the Masters final in 2010. I'm not sure, did I win that one? No, he won that 10-9. Yeah, because I think I won the one the year previous before. I think I beat him in 2009. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when Mark was coming through, it was me who he was playing in a lot of finals. And, yeah, I think by then, you know, we had a lot of close matches. And, you know, he just knew then that he was going to be, you know, it was a tough match to play. Mm. So, yeah, no, yeah, he's just just an all-round good professional, you know. So, who would you say your main rivals now going forward, Ronnie? We've talked about, Selby, we've talked about Williams and Higgins, but out of the young pretenders coming through or even that are in the game now, you know, Robertson, Murphy, Trump, obviously, who do you see as your main rival? I don't, I don't really put myself in to have a rival. I think you want to kind of like be similar eras, you know, it's hard for me to be a rival for with Ding or Judd because, there's, you know, they've got 14 years on me. Um, I, I just always think that the players are not too, you know, like say some, some like Selby, I think I can give him a game still. I still think I could give Murphy a game. I still think I could probably give uh, Neil Roberts a game because the age difference is not that much different, me, John Higgins, Williams. But I just think when you're looking at the younger ones, it's a little bit harder because they, they're so hungry and they've got such, so much desire that, you know, it's um, they, they every match that they play like a John Higgins or a Mark Williams or a Sean Murphy or Neil Robertson, they might lose, but it's just a learning curve for them. So it's just making them stronger and stronger. But mm-hmm. as like a little bit when I was playing Hendry towards the end of his career, I was I was gaining a lot from it where it was it it was doing him no good. And I think eventually, you know, you get to the age stage where it's hard for you to keep, you know, battling in a way. So, you know, it's um you just, for me, my, my situation is just, just to keep playing for as long as I can, you know, and, and hopefully I can still win a few tournaments every now and again. Do you think out of the players that are still playing today that Judd is probably um, the one player in the game that lives up to expectation from the fans when they want to see an entertainer, they want to see the next Higgins, the next White, the next O'Sullivan? It's, without a doubt, he's on his own. He can carry that torch? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, without a doubt. He plays like a different game. He plays a brilliant game. He's a power play. He plays shots that no one else can play. He's got the killer instinct. He's hungry. He's proven after winning the World Championships. It, it, we all know it wasn't a fluke, but you know there was still people out there saying, oh, you know, can he back it up? He's come this season. He's already won six ranking events, which is more than any player's ever had to do. 
yeah, I know there's more ranking events now than ever, but still to win six is a fantastic achievement. So, you know, for me, he's a complete player now, you know, and he's just going to get stronger and stronger. And, uh, yeah, I just think, you know, he's, he's, it's like when Henry come along, you know, he was pretty much head and shoulders above everybody else. And I think that Judd is head and shoulders above everybody else at the moment. It's weird, isn't it? Because Henry, of course, won his world title when he was 21 and Judd won his first one when he was 30. But you still feel as though Judd could win another four or five. Oh, easy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like Judd, Judd in 10 years, Judd will have the problem that I'm having there. There'll be a few young ones come up behind him and he'll have a few battle scars and, you know, they'll keep pushing up. And, and eventually, mentally, you kind of like, you know, if you're not mentally up for it or you're just a little bit off, you, you start to lose matches, you know. So you've got the next seven to ten years to, 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 to dominate, really. And um, I just think it's a lot harder for Judd coming through than it was when Hendry came through because Hendry didn't really, apart from Davis, you know, Jimmy on his day, he didn't really have a lot to, to you know, there wasn't anyone there that was going to frighten him, if you know what I mean. Mm. Whereas with Judd, when he came along, you still had Hendry, you've got Higgins, you had Williams, you've got me. Yeah, ding. You know, this. You know, it was hard to sort of come in and dominate from that point on. But I think, you know, um, I think players have de- developed a little bit more slowly now. You know, you, you learn your trade, and and um, you know, every, every player gets ten years, whether that's twenty to thirty or thirty to forty. Judd started at thirty, and I think he'll go on to forty. Um, playing some fantastic snooker. Who else can compete with Judd then at the moment when they're playing to the best of their ability and Judd is as well? Who can give them a really close game? No one. No one. Just there's no one out there. Not even yourself? You don't put yourself in that category, Ron? Uh, listen, you can go out there, you know, listen, if we played five times, if I won once, twice, possible. But, you know, um, you know, he's just going to get stronger and stronger. And I think I think the best thing that's happened to Judd is, is his brother. You know, I think if he, if he wouldn't have had his brother there, maybe Judd wouldn't have made the changes that he's made. But I just think, he, you know, he'll owe a lot to his brother. And I think his brother has been, you know, the best thing that's happened to Judd. You know, so um, mm. I'm glad his brother came along now, not 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I bet you are. Uh, listen, before you go, I really, enjoyed, I really enjoyed today's chat. We've been talking about rivals and Snooker's had loads of them from Davis and Higgins to... Um, Davis and and White and Hendry and White and of course we've spoken about yours um, and I'll let you include your own rivalry if, if it is the answer but what's been your favourite rivalry through the years in snooker? Um, I probably have to say uh, Higgins. Higgins Higgins has kept me on my toes more than anybody. Uh, yeah, we've had some great battles. You know, I've took I've took some really bad beatings off of John. You know, and they've, they've hurt. But like I said, when you're younger, them, them ones that hurt, they make you stronger. If I was taking them beatings now, I'd probably go, I'd run a mile, mate. I'd be like, you know, I'm, I'm not up for this. But when you're younger, you've got no fear. You know, you just you just want to improve. You know, you're single. You've got nothing else going on in your life. And it's all part of, you know, making you a better player. But as you get older, you don't want to be taking them beatings, you know. So, you know, you don't learn so much when you're older. So, um, yeah, I think, me and John have had some fantastic matches. Well, listen, we've had a fantastic half hour with you. Thanks so much for your time. It's always a pleasure seeing you. Thanks, Andy. And we'll see you soon. And make sure we see you again soon. There's loads of these podcasts on Eurosport and you can download them as a podcast on iTunes as well. So make sure you catch up with all of them. In the meantime, thanks for watching. For myself and Ronnie, bye for now and we'll see you in a bit. Adios.